This is the Collective Nightmares podcast. We are sociologists who talk horror films. My name is Marshall. And bluntly, plainly, I love horror films. I love talking horror films, particularly with my co-host, because it leads us to what she has coined as the most interesting questions in the world. And we got to a new one, I think, out of our discussion today. And for a variety of reasons, horror films with with their ability to to run the gamut of life lead us with a higher success to these most interesting questions in the world in comparison to other genres. Absolutely, because they're a playground for good and evil. <laughs> What's more interesting in life than what is good and what is not? I feel like that's the base of what we're trying to figure out. <laughs> I'm Laura Patterson. Marshall and I both have our PhDs in sociology from the University of Colorado at Boulder. And yeah, I love horror films because they allow us to do exactly that, to think about what our society considers good and what we consider bad. And in this case of The Last House on the Left remake, it's a really interesting example where we can compare how society characterized good and bad 45 or something years ago, right? 1972 compared to 2009. over a a huge swath of time. And it's fascinating to see what has changed, what has not changed, what appears to have regressed um, in terms of, uh, at least through the, through the vision of these films uh, in terms of how our society was seeing certain issues and, and what was considered evil and what was considered good. Absolutely. So this is the second in a double feature that is the last house on the left films. Our previous episode is the original by Craven in 1972, Wes Craven. And we reference that consistently throughout this episode. So spoilers for original remake, and it will be helpful for you if you can to listen to the discussion on the original before you listen to this one. This is the 2009 remake from director Dennis Iliadis and screenplay from Adam Aleka and Carl Ellsworth. Synopsis is essentially the same. After kidnapping and brutally assaulting two young women, a gang unknowingly finds refuge at a vacation home belonging to the parents of one of the victims. And horror ensues. Did we spoil anything else? We talk about I Spit on Your Grave. If somehow you don't even know the premise of that film, there's spoilers. If you at least know the very basic premise of it, I don't think we go beyond that. We discussed teeth, but not in a spoiler sort of way. Yeah. Okay, good. And you can find our entire backlog of episodes at collectivenightmares.com for free. We do this for free. We very much would appreciate any uh, feedback you have. Actually, I was listening to that again. This is a second of our fan request. Let's take the Disney World version nope let's take the disney world ride and see what this version gives us i was gonna go back go with uh go back to that house one more time 
<laughs> oh, that'd be so good. <laughs> but, but I like yours too. Oh, I like I like that. Old ride version. I like that. <laughs> you recording? I think so. I was super disappointed. I mean, not to say I had really, really high hopes because it's a remake and often they're bad, but I thought it had potential and I thought the original film could actually stand to be remade. And it was super interesting. Did you notice in the credits that one of the producers was named Jonathan Craven? No, I'm sure that's his kid. I think I've heard that before, actually. Eh. (laughs) I have have several (laughs) things to say that I didn't like about it, but not too many to say that I did. What's your, uh, what's your overall take? Uh, yeah, son of, son of Wes Craven. Uh, I, it was, you know, as remakes go, it was surprisingly adequate compared to some of the remakes that we've seen. Pet Cemetery comes to mind. Something else comes to mind. Um, what other remakes have we seen? We didn't do Child's Play, right? We just thought about we, it and haven't done it yet. We have the not Shining. done that yet. Uh, that was a sequel, not a remake, technically. Right. I spit on your grave. Oh, yeah. The, yeah, that remake is right. It, right. Uh, the, the 2010 remake of that is, I mean, I remember that being profoundly objectionably, offensively bad of a remake. I mean, yeah, I remember the I Spit on Your Grave remake being, we, we talked about that at length. By all means, go listen to that episode if you haven't. Yeah, it, it went from being this, yes, it was a swung the entire other way of just being, like, a, again, offensively bad. Pet Cemetery wasn't offensively bad. It was just plain bad, really bad, but not in ways that were morally uh, <laughs> corrosive. Oh, and, it, it. It would totally yeah. it on that list also. Uh, yeah, which did have some some real social responsibility issues, if I remember. But again, not at the level of I Spit in Your Grave. But so yeah, going from those three, like this was fine. Like I didn't find it particularly offensive. Um, I, I think the main things for me that I'd want to discuss would be the the how they dealt with the sexual assault, the rape scene, you know, the details of that. And for me, then the more interesting questions are kind of some things we didn't do a a whole lot with the original, which would be things like, does it matter that, that the parents end up being brought down to the level of the criminals? That's true for the original and the remake. And then the other question that occurred to me while watching this one was, does the general storyline story arc promote a conservative ideology. So those would be my, my couple things that I'd want to discuss. But yeah, the, the, the remake itself, it was very adequate. But I think it, it was most notable in revealing why the original is a classic and was a game changer, was a genre changer. And this was just another kind of torture porny, kind of generic slasher film. So yeah, I'll throw out my three kind of main arguments here and then we can decide which of these we want to sort through. First, it felt so much, it just felt so commercialized and washed out and and I couldn't even put my finger on what that was. This is probably the least interesting of the three points I want to make. I don't know why I'm leading with it, but just in the way that the new Pet Cemetery felt, 
And in the way that the new It felt, and in the way that the new I Spit on Your Grave felt, not that that didn't have other problems too, I don't even know what it was, but it, like how to, how to nail that down. The Beautiful People has something to do with it, has something to do with the Disney World vibe that it gives. But there was just a washed out boringness to it that felt very much like mass consumption crap. And so one thing that, two, my favorite thing about watching this film was it all the way through, I kept just being reaffirmed and feeling like I was smart in the last episode where I said that this was the sort of feminist aspects of the last film. No, they weren't stellar, but that I thought they were better actually than a present day movie certainly could be. And I felt entirely <laughs> validated in watching then the present day remake, roughly present day of the same film and feeling like, wow, it was like leaps and bounds beyond, I mean, worse in terms of gender representation than the original film. Again, not to say the original film was great, but this one was so much worse. And I think it'll be fun to just go through and outline all the ways in which that was true. And that was sad. And that actually, I think, played into the sort of commercialized feeling also. And what was my third? My third, I missed the carnival music. <laughs> which, not just in terms of soundtrack, because the first time I saw Last House on the Left, I thought the carnival music was so bad, it was distractingly awful. But what I mean is that I missed the fun vibe that the evil, the evil was presented in Last House on Your Left as sport. And that is interest, that's more interesting somehow to me than evil as it was depicted in this film. And it's a sort of subtle difference, but at the same time, it's not. I felt it oppressively weighty throughout the film that the evil in this film seemed a bit like somebody doing their taxes. It felt like they had to, if nobody was particularly happy. And to me, that was just a much less interesting kind of evil to play with. And I even thought the, the revenge component of the film also felt less, less like sport than the first film. And so I think overall the carnival vibe, what that carnival music was meant to capture in the first version of the film was really lacking in this film. It, it hurt something for me in having that missing. Yeah, taking your first point first I, I agree with everything you've said and adding to that tall man versus winter's bone we talked about that specifically with tall man being too too clean it was a clean dirty and it was a clean it was a clean organized poverty that just didn't it just reeked of inauthenticity i mean i understand it's a film but and then the, the second point that i have for that is maybe better than anything else I actually think Rob Zombie is able to get past the super pretty, super clean. He is able to create a style that is has some some authenticity to his grit. And the people that he works with are still generally beautiful people, but something about what he has, what he does, especially in those early films, he is able to get past that. So it doesn't seem so polished and so like you say, mass consumption, that it has that edge of a of like a 70s film. So I just wanted to throw that out. I think you're exactly right. That His films are aesthetically beautiful, but the people aren't necessarily beautiful. Some of them are. I mean, they are in like real life, but he's in the not character all. of the film. Right. I mean, not all by any stretch, really, some. And that's, you're right, that's a a much more interesting beauty. It's like an artistic beauty instead of just a flat out, here's a pretty person. Yeah. And then your third, I also noticed the music and the, the shift in, 
in tone to a very standard score, very scan- standard horror score. And I agree. It was not helpful. I wondered how conscious of decision of that. It was really interesting to watch the film without that because it really, and it's one of those things where it's just a testament to how important and impactful music is for a film, whether it's a standard score or whether it's, or whether you're going to take a risk and go out with like this carnival-esque totally curveball music, whatever you're going to do with it, it is as important as mostly anything, I guess, in a, in a, in a film. And then the second piece is the gender sexuality, which coincides a lot with what I want to talk about. So we can do that as a more extensive, but those first two, those are, like you said, are, are less uh, questions with less depth, but uh, I mean, they're definitely, I'm glad you brought them up, but we can kind of check those off unless you have more and then, and then move forward. No. Yeah. I think that sounds good. I think your point on conservative, whether it portrayed a conservative message ties right into what I was thinking around these issues of representation and what good and evil was and how that was played out in terms of the characters in the film. You want to do that first or do you want to do the gender stuff first? Let's do gender first. I think they tie together, honestly. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm sure we could probably do either one first. Just asking. Can I lay out my reasons then yeah. of why this film represented women just in a far inferior way to the initial film, which again was 50 years ago. Right. Our lead character, Mary, was very much the standard virgin. I mean, this was such a, it, this is why I say that I think this ties into the overall how evil is represented argument very closely because I think we're watching an 80s slasher here. We've just got our very standard virginal character who, you know, is an athlete and blonde hair, blue eyes, has turned down drugs right at the beginning of the film, is presented in a very childlike way. In contrast to our initial film, she's very much her parents' baby. I think that's how it's, it's characterized, very, very much so. The mother really lacks autonomy compared to the father, and both of them are very they just treat their daughter like a child very much so. So I don't think Mary has autonomy when Mary goes out, she's not going out into the crazy big city with her wild friend and her parents are okay with it. And which is what happened in the first film. Now she's going to some boring, washed out, whatever beach. Yeah. It's Lake town tourists. It's just really there for a few locals. And like you said, the wealthy tourists who have a, a house, a second house there. Yeah. It's yeah, very safe. Yeah. Very safe. And there's no adventure. And again, I think we're back to an 80s slasher film where we're in comfortable suburbia and it just gets totally shaken up by these evil outsiders. And so that just felt, again, just so tropey. The fact that, again, in this film, evil, bad deeds seem to represent death much more so than they did in the prior film. So, you know, her friend does drugs. Her friend has to convince her to do drugs. And that clearly plays out badly for them. Her friend starts flirting with the boy, which is trouble. Justin, was that his name? What else? The mom, when it comes to enacting violence, does not engage autonomously to nearly the extent that she did in the prior film. What else? I think there's more. Do you have any more to add there? Yeah, with the baby presentation, she's, she's wearing a baby doll dress for the first however many minutes of the film after she's swimming her laps or whatever. 
oh God, right, when she's swimming her laps, the objectification of her body at the beginning of the film was gross. It was gross <laughs> because she was treated like a child. And here we are lingering on her putting her clothes on and her panty line and like in ways that just did not feel, I was creeped out. Yeah, it was, I find this really compelling. Again, that whatever that, I've talked about this a few times, that difference between, and it seems, it seems to be an era thing primarily, but the difference between how objectifying the camera seems to be in these modern films in comparison to these films of the early mid seventies. I spit on your grave last us on the left specifically or, or things I'm thinking of even cannibal Holocaust is so fascinating to me because I don't know if, how about this? I agree with you. It also didn't feel to me like the director was intentionally trying to do that. It was, it felt like, he was just shooting whatever and he was so like it just it had happened without him it, it seemed like a passive decision it seemed like well that's how you do it or, or just like this is because so much of the rest of the film felt so just adequate just straightforward like you said you're checking off a list you're going through and so it wasn't i don't know if that's that's how you felt but i i agree with you completely and I think it makes it worse that it was, I don't know if it makes it worse or not, but it was just so bizarre to me that it was, it accomplished that without feeling like a, a, an intentional presentation. And it was such an opportunity where it didn't need to be that. I mean, she's doing a very functional thing, the swimming laps. And from just having been around folks who, who live by a lake, just going swimming in your underwear, brown underwear, whatever, at least I think seems to be a fairly standard thing, particularly if you're out there alone. It's the first time she's been to the lake in however long. Oh yeah. You know, throw off and go. I mean, that doesn't seem like a big thing, but so it could have, those things are totally things that could have been presented where she was, there was nudity and it didn't need to be so objectifying and it totally was. And that's so interesting to me. And I just, one more thing, cause I know you want to say something else is, it seems to me that even with more nudity in some of the 70s films, it's less objectifying. There's less nudity, I think, overall, if you did like a frame count in these more modern films, but it's more objectifying, which I, again, I find whatever those details of that camera work are. So I just, I still haven't quite put my finger on it, uh, but I think it's yeah, really fascinating. I wonder to some extent if it's the direction of your gaze by the camera. Because when I think the older films, it seems like you see nudity in its entirety and where you look is more up to you. Whereas what creeped me out so much in this film wasn't even just the swimming. It was the, she was getting dressed afterwards, right? It was that piece where we were were zoomed in on her belly button to like upper panty line. And at other areas as well, like we, we zoomed in on little details and then watched her zip her zipper. And just the way that we were directed around her body as she was getting dressed felt really creepy. And there wasn't much nudity. I don't even know if she was, if we saw anything explicit in those scenes, but the way that we saw it felt creepily sexual, especially in contrast with the fact that we then went on to characterize her almost as a child. Yes, the- you're right. And I appreciate you pointing that out because the nudity was, uh, because the nudity seemed very much 
Okay, let me start again. The nudity that I was referencing was overall in the film, particularly Sadie, which is also interesting that we see her nude repeatedly and she's the evil one. So there's something there with sexuality and evil and being evil. Oh, you're totally right. We can't let that drop because it's a super good observation, right? And Sadie, the final scene with Sadie, she's sitting there on the floor shirtless with her head, her hair over her head so all you can see are her breasts. So yes, and and so there's, and like you said, with Mary being innocent and being childish, childlike, at least in presentation, and then not being shown, like you said, being really presented in this objectifying and uh, um, sexualized way without the nudity is really building towards this equation of, of women's sexuality or women's bodies as, I don't know, there's something there with sexuality and uh, women's sexuality and, and being evil. Yes, I agree with you. Absolutely. The camera directing the gaze is more deliberate and that, it is very revealing about how or given more instruction on how to view. I think you're right. Then generally speaking in the seventies films, I think that's an idea we should keep in mind when we encounter these kinds of things in the future. I think that's a key bit of it. I feel like there's still something else, some other component of that, but I think you're, um, I think that's a very important part that you're pointing out there. I agree with that. What, what else were we saying? Oh, with, do we ever actually see any nudity for Mary? I don't think we do. I think you're right. We're mostly presented with, like you said, these um, literally, uh, what is the word? What is the word where you thought there was a, oh, the fragmented body. Like you said, so it's just from uh, thigh to midriff or it's just legs or it's just breasts or whatever it is which is something Kilborn points out extensively in her Killing Us Softly videos as a key component of objectification. And then the rape scene specifically, I think I said last time, and I think that's still true, that this rape scene for me was one that stood out as as particularly difficult to watch, and I still felt that way. And I, I bring that up because given what you're saying about how the camera fragmented Mary's body before when that similar fragmentation happens during the assault, I think that makes that more problematic because generally overall, I think I found the actual scene of the assault and the filming of the assault, my, my initial reaction, and I reserve the right to revise that as we discuss, but it was a, Generally speaking, responsible presentation of the assault. I felt like our empathy stayed with Mary. I felt like the camera focused on her experience of it as the victim. It wasn't completely on her, which is really what I remember. I remember the camera staying focused on her face and us. I feel like it was mostly her face and her grasping at the ground. Yeah, and... And it's really claustrophobic to where I felt like we're, like you said, we're close in and maybe there's still at the edge of the frame. Like you can see that he's still on top of her or he's doing whatever he's doing. And I, so I felt like I was there in there with her and it was a long, prolonged, very like I spit on your grave, just 
miserable, okay, this isn't just a, a revenge version, the film revenge, where you see it start to happen and then you cut to the aftermath so we don't actually have to be confronted with the experience of it. It was like we sat through this whole, really the whole thing. And in some ways, that, or in this case anyway, for those of you who haven't listened, I just want to... I want to say in the past where we have done a series of rape revenge films, what we have come to arrive at is the details are really what matter with whether or not a sexual assault is presented with some responsibility. And so I'm going to constrain my arguments specifically to this film because I don't think we have a broader theory of what those specific factors are other than the things like we're talking about of empathizing with the victim the extent of the experience that we are witnessing being crucial for our empathizing and for our understanding the severity of the abuse. So really gratuity has to be minimized. So in those ways, I thought it was, I thought it was a a well-presented sexual assault, which like you said, given some of these other things that, that are problematic in the film, that to me was, was done well in the sense of being responsible with the presentation. I agree with that. I think if you take that scene separately, absent the rest of the film, I think it was presented fine. I think the broader argument we need to then make is, given its presence in the film and the broader argument that the film was making, did it need to be there? Was it there for something other than shock value and how was it utilized? You know, How was that emotion that gets drummed up in the audience utilized? That I think it gets a bit stickier because it felt to me like the rape was as much, if not more, in terms of how it was presented in the film, an assault on the father as it was on Mary. It was very much something that he was horrified to find out. He told the mother, which was also a weird scene. The fact that he would even feel the need to say that right that moment was super bizarre. And then the fact that the, what's his name, Krug, uh, at the end, brings it back up to the father and describes the rape to the father again. I think the way the, the purpose that the rape served in the overall film was not really to highlight Mary's plight, but rather to highlight the father's plight. And that seems problematic to me. But in terms of strictly how it was shot, I would agree with you. That is an outstanding point, Laura, and I completely agree with what you're saying. And it does, and exactly how you said it, the assault itself was presented fine uh, on the side of responsible put in the context exactly as you're saying really becomes problematic and is even more so when like you said there's these other issues with women's agency mary her her swimming she does have some agency in escaping she strikes krug in the head and so then wait, runs for it. Oh, go ahead, please. I'm sorry. To talk about that. Yeah, I'll talk about the swimming in particular as a deviation from the initial film in relation to the argument that we're just talking about here. Because my first instinct was that in terms of the assault scene itself, I found that to be less effective. I liked the initial film where Mary st- staggers off in a very I spit on your grave sort of way. And you really feel her. You feel her pain in that, not just physical pain, but emotional pain and her inability to be present in that moment and take charge of the moment. And so that to me felt like it did a better, 
it somehow served the rape scene itself better to have her be incapacitated in that way afterwards. Whereas this one bothered me a little bit when she stood up and suddenly it was like, well, okay, that's over. I'm going to go. I mean, I'm not, that's not really what she was presenting, but there was more an element of that. And actually her agency, I struggled with that in the moment because I thought, do I like her agency because she's a more agentic person? Do I feel like that really undersold the experience that she just had? I, I don't know. I didn't have that same feeling, I think, because they had this, they do have some of that. So here she strikes him, but they, so they have a run, but they have this slow motion or, or slowed down where she really is still in pain and for me, desperation. So I felt like there was an effort there. I could see why it wouldn't be so convincing. And I agree that the the first film, probably more so, it didn't upset me. It it, did, it didn't feel like she had just cast it off. I, I agree with you, I suppose, in, in hearing you say that. And I don't even know if I liked it or didn't like it. Yeah. It was just, it was an interesting, notable choice that they made her more agentic. And I was, I was unsure. Yeah, same. And what I, where I was going was, with her swimming away and it, it was so odd that they made this point of how fast she swims and she's a swimming racer. She's not just a casual swimmer. And yet even still by having Krug able to land a shot in this one, because in the original mind, I don't, he doesn't hit her. He doesn't shoot her when she's swimming. Does she, does he? I think he shoots her in the head and she dies. I think she makes a very meager attempt to escape, if you want to call it that, through the water. And he just puts her down really quickly, which had a, a strong impact in the initial film, I felt, particularly because it, it put the protagonist out. It dispensed of the protagonist so early in the film that it made you wonder where it was going to go. Right. And that's the huge, crucial deviation of this film right is that mary survives how about this it seems to truncate mary's agency if the one skill and the one character development component that we have is her swimming ability and in that crucial moment of escape it is in effect if she were to swim and have been hurt already but she's able to swim in such a way that she can escape further harm so if she'd been shot as she'd been running through the woods, but still was able to overcome that and everything else could have still played out, then her, then she would have had a different level of agency, much more significant than what she did. As it was, that's the one thing she can do. It ultimately still didn't work. And that seemed, that, that's another strike against the, the film and the presentation of gender in the, in the film. It, it's sort of like when you're saying with the mom, she kills, she lands the final kill shot for Sadie. She shoots her. And then doesn't she also hit, hit with the hammer? So she gets the final actual deaths, but up to those final moments, she doesn't, she can't drown Aaron Paul. I don't know what his name is. <laughs> she can't drown him. She, she's not effective in any of the other, these other ways involved in any of the struggle the struggle is all dad versus whoever whoever it is and even with sadie isn't sadie killed when she's in bed so there is no struggle. no she, no she shoots her 
they go into the bathroom and she has the shower bar and oh, oh oh right sorry i'm remembering the other film aren't i i think so yeah okay so sadie has some good agency sadie fights back and does some smart things but then she's naked while she's doing it so and not to jump around too much but i think it's all related so i think it's okay yeah sadie on the list of ways that I felt like characters were less developed in terms of gender in this film than they were in the seventies version. I thought Sadie, not that she was without problem, but she was much more agentic in the initial version of the film than now. She was very much Krug's sidekick in this film. And you're right that she, in terms of her ability to fight, she has a little bit of agency somewhat, but what felt more notable to me in the 70s version is that she was there because she wanted to be there for the most part maybe not entirely but i basically got the sense that she was she was allowed to house some of the evil the evil that this film was about she actually carried some of it on purpose she wasn't just a sidekick to the man who was being evil but she was there because she wanted to be and she was having fun with this again the carnival aspect i think helped that a little bit in this film she just she lacked that for me. She didn't seem to, she didn't seem like she was allowed to carry any of the evil. She was allowed to be implicated by proximity, but not to actually intend to be cruel. I agree with that. She was very much relegated to sidekick. The term that comes to mind for me is, is like a bolt on. She's not really integrated into the crew. She's added on. And similarly with the violence and the struggle, it's not really integral. It's sprinkled on at the end in some sort of, kind of superficial effort to equalize things or to include her. It, it, so it felt like a, a tokenization is not quite the right word, but that's sort of, or that's sort of similar underlying concept of we're going to throw that in as a bad faith gesture without actually trying to do it at a fundamental level. And now I'm going to jump back to the mom and, you know, dad hands mom, was that a gun? It's a gun, right? Dad has to put it in mom's hand and cup her hands around it so that she can go through with this. Like she needs his direction or support or whatever it is. And mom just, the look on her face throughout the entire film was one of a puppy that was getting kicked. And I under- Or a I under- pig. A pig getting kicked. Or a pig. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> consistent. <laughs> Thank you for that. She, they set the family up as victims. And that was a really bizarre choice in this film. Again, compared to the 70s version, they were victims already because they had already lost a child. Then we have Mary, who is presented as a child and an innocent in a way. And so she's not fully agentic because she's got little bunny stickers on her phone or whatever she has. I mean, I think she's just very much so presented as, as an innocent little girl. Mom is traumatized by what happened in the past. Can't cope. It seems with the world needs dad to tell her it's okay to even let her daughter go out. Maybe like she's just, she's just struggling. And it was such a strange choice to set them up as victims from the get go. I don't know if that was supposed to give them extra motivation for their revenge, but I felt like, Dad was able to let that characterization roll off of him a little bit more. But with mom, it just stuck. And it just stuck to her throughout the entire film, so much so that she just, I thought she was horribly unpleasant to be around. And I know we had another mom character like this in another film that we saw. I almost want to say it was The Shining or the whatever, Dr. Sleep, but it may not have been. Do you remember that though? She had dark hair. I just remember despising her throughout the film because again, she had no, 
<laughs> yes, you're correct. I remember that too. I don't remember. I'm looking now. I'm looking at our episode list and I don't know. The mom and crawl is totally absent, right? So yeah, it wasn't crawl. She I really remember us talking about it. Just looked like an injured puppy. Dang it. Yeah, I don't remember what that was. Shoot. And that I think is a good segue, at least for me, to the ideology of the film, because which I guess we'll start with this one, and then we can see if it applies to the, the original as well, Craven's original. So we see the, the failure of, of police. So we the, see the failure of a social institution to accomplish the safety and the containment of evil in the form of these violent criminals. And as a result, they, they brutalize the girls, Mary and her friend Paige and the social safety net fails in that the phones are out, power fails, power is out. So these, the infrastructure, the, the physical infrastructure has failed as well as the social infrastructure. And so as a result, the white upper middle class, lower upper class, whatever responsible good people are the victims. And so they have to, they have to move in this, on the spectrum of like vigilantism to they are now, it's very neoliberal of like the individual has to, stand on his own and I use that gendered term deliberately but the individual has to stand on their own and in the face of these failing social institutions and and infrastructure they are the ones who have to accomplish safety for and and establish justice and he also provides his own medical care <laughs> uh being a doctor and and so it is very much a, a neoliberal individualized, you have to do your own thing. And on top of that, making the gun then a crucial component of how to accomplish that really, in my mind, propels, like you said, this white upper middle class victimhood at the hands of, of a lower class, at least in taste and style, criminal. And that seems that seems really problematic i mean i know this is 10 years ago but it's you know it's like the only thing that could be worse is if the criminals were like people of color <laughs> and then <laughs> if you just imagine that it would be like oh my god you know what are we saying here anyway go ahead I love how you laid that out and i think an important piece of your argument too has to do with when our our villains arrive in the kitchen and there's a particular comment that Sadie makes about your kitchen being so clean and it's so nice just to be here. And then also the, her comment about them having a second house and like, Oh, you have another house. And so very much. So I was, I was, that caught my attention. Not many things in the film caught my attention, but that little snippet caught my attention because I always like to pay attention to what goes in the bad bucket. And in the bad bucket, we had, we had drugs, we had sex. Like you said, we probably had nudity in the bad bucket. We had darkness, just like, just like, uh, what did we just see? Um, teeth, where, again, everybody was white. But even so, the, the bad kid was darker than the blonde, blue-eyed, good kid. And so we had that again in this film, that the, her friend was darker 
than she was. And Sadie was darker just in terms of hair color and that sort of thing. And then interesting in the bad bucket got thrown criticism of social hierarchy and picking on the, I don't know if it was picking on, but like someone who might come in and critique inequality or the amount of wealth that you own is a threat. Yeah. I want to add to that, that while we focused on women, Krug is also shirtless for most of the rest of the film. So there is actually a nudity across that is all put in the bad bucket. Oh, interesting. Totally. And I'm now I'm trying to think if that was similarly the case with the original. I don't remember it being, but that may be just because I, I don't know if we talked about it. But that again, that may be because I don't know why we we had so many other things to talk about. Maybe it didn't come up. It wasn't entirely. And also the kids at the beginning of this film, right? When they show the photograph, they were again, little blonde haired, blue eyed children. And in the original version of the film, both of the women had dark hair. And I don't mean to pull on hair color necessarily as a big construct, but it was just in teeth that I first noticed that and thought, oh, this is really interesting that bad brother is so much just darker than she is in, in metaphorical ways as well as physical. And that was notable in this film too. It was notable that the family was very blonde and that the, the good little kids who were losing their policeman, father, whatever, at the beginning of the film were very blonde. And then the bad friend was darker and the, the bad characters in this film were darker. But that wasn't the case in the first. No, I was thinking more ideology. I do want to say, I don't. that's not making too much out of hair. You know, I think to the trope that our friends over at the Bechdel cast have pointed out that the woman with the shortest hair is in charge. (laughs) The rule of movies. (laughs) So uh, I I think what you're saying here with the, with the woman with the lightest or the women with the lightest hair are the, are the good and the less sexual and the more um, esteemed may well be another trope with women and hair and appearance. Sure. To tie this to teeth, less sexual, but more sexually desired. Oh, yeah. There you go. We don't get to see her nipples, but we get to linger on her in this very sexualizing way. And the same with teeth. Everybody wanted her. Everybody, including the bad, wanted her in teeth. That's great. Yes, that's an important additional layer to that trope. But then say what you were saying about ideology, because I somehow missed the direction you were headed on that when I jumped in. I was trying to decide if that was the case if that was the case with the original film. And I I think maybe it was. It it is interesting that they depoliticized, or they, I don't know if they successfully depoliticized the film, but they overtly, they removed the overt political components of the original film. There was no mention of feminism. There was no mention of of, uh, women's liberation. There was, like you said, there wasn't, the girls were really not doing anything out on their own in terms of independence and going to explore something, like you said, a larger world. The whole discussion that was so bizarre, but ultimately I think was about women's liberation with a dad and what are you wearing and whatever was taken out. The heavy metal band was removed. The uh, There was something else. Shoot, there was some other political component to the original film that was also omitted here. I can't, uh, I can't think of what it was. 
darn it. But anyway, all of that was removed. And then in this case, and, but still in the film, oh, but in the original, there's still, uh, well, you know, in the original, I think there is, it was at least better because the cops, while slow, ultimately do still show up. It is not, and uh, it's not the failure of the infrastructure. It's dad hasn't fixed the phone or put the phone line in or whatever else. It's something more individual responsibility that has cut them off from phone contact. It's also 1970 or whatever. So communication is not as much of a taken for granted situation. I just felt like if, if anything else, it was lighter on the failure of the social system and that's what leads to all of this. And like you said, then with the quality of the vengeance and that motivation, with it being different in the original film, I think that changes or at least shifts the, it alters the ideological component as well. Maybe you can say more about what you thought was the, the shift in the, in the motivation or the, how, the quality of the vengeance in this. I absolutely want to get to that. I just want to make one other little modification to what you're saying which was that I agree with everything you've said so far. I would also want to add that in this film, it was notable what good was not allowed to do in this film, that good was allowed to do in the previous version, again, 50 years ago. So I think in the previous version, first of all, good was allowed to not be blonde. <laughs> and I mean, that seems it's low hanging fruit, but it's just interesting that in this film, that wasn't the case. In the previous film, good was allowed to want to have sex and want drugs. In this film, yes. Good was not allowed to want that. Good had to be arm twisted into doing that. And that was really different. In the previous film, Good was allowed to want adventure and independence. In this film, Good was a child. Good was to be kept and cared for by her parents. And I think all of those, those that additional treatment of Good really impacts the ideology of the film compared to the previous film. So well said, absolutely. So move on to vengeance? I guess so. <laughs> okay. I find myself sometimes feeling like I'm just restating your points when I'm agreeing with you. And that's probably because of something to do with men's privilege, but I just, I'm trying to catch myself. I, I, I don't mean to do it in a way that is problematic. I think I get so excited about what you're saying. I want to restate it to understand it, but I'm, I, I don't think I need to always do that. So yes, let's do vengeance. So in the previous film, Mary was already dead. And when the parents embarked on their vengeance, it felt like flat out revenge. It felt emotionally driven. There wasn't a practical component. I, I didn't think there was a practical component. And I won't say it was fun. I mean, vengeance isn't fun, but in a revenge movie, vengeance is often a little bit fun, a little bit fun in the you deserve it kind of way. And though mom's in the previous film method of vengeance was, I thought it just an odd character shift to be able to snap immediately from your daughter died to like seducing this man that's responsible for it was, was weird. But even so there was a lot of agency involved in that, that vengeance. And there was, if I'm, I don't know if I'm misremembering, it was only a week ago, but it's hard when it gets tainted by having just seen the other film. I feel like there was a bit of, I don't know if joy is the right word, but something positive emotion in their vengeance that seemed to be lacking in this film. In this film, it felt more pragmatic it felt more like victims being forced to do something 
which I felt that way throughout this entire film, that everyone was a victim being forced to blank. Even starting with Mary, you know, Mary in the initial film at least wanted to be where she was going. She was entering a sort of adventurous, possibly slightly risky situation because she wanted to be there. But here, Mary gets dragged really unwittingly into this whole setup. Mary doesn't want to do anything. And then Mary just doesn't want the things that happen to her. And then her parents just want to stop what's happening. There was less agency and less... I think fun is, like I said, it's not the right word, but you maybe get what I'm saying when I say fun. Just the the quality of the revenge felt different to me in these two films, and that felt important. Yeah, there's a word that, I I feel like there's a word for the emotion you're describing, or the, and I can't think of it. Fun doesn't strike me as particularly right, but some sort of satisfaction that is drawn from uh, retribution. Um, I don't have to do this. I'm doing it because I want to. Maybe it's a sad situation that you want to, but I didn't feel that in this film nearly as much. I felt like they had to fight these people off. I agree with that. That's really interesting. I, I don't think I noticed that while watching. You're right. And as much as we kind of mocked the whole scenario of how they had time to put together all these gadgets and traps or whatever, it was still, it, it added to that feeling that you're talking about. Before I say anything else, I want to add that having her necklace be, and this whole identifying thing be something that her brother gave her also is another piece to the puzzle of what you're saying where she is only important in relation to men. And like you were saying about virginity and and her being raped was was an attack on her father more than it was her that that's another piece in that it was like okay you're you're important because your brother loved you not that that was another piece i just thought of that i wanted to say it, okay so so what does that do in terms of the ideological argument if what they are doing is more i think for me it means that in this case the parents are more embattled and together with the like you said the additional layer of them being victimized do we know how how brother dies? Do we get anything on that? I don't think we do. I think what you're saying is right on, and I think this ties to your initial argument about um, oh oh about the parents being relegated to the level of the the villains. And so in the first film, I would say yes, they were, and I don't think I even realized this in our initial conversation until you said what you said now. But in the first film, yes, they were relegated to the level of the villains, but then they took that on somewhat willingly. Like they got some benefit out of enacting this violence. It wasn't to save their kid. Their kid was already gone. And it wasn't, I mean, maybe it was to some extent to protect themselves, but it didn't feel that way. It felt gratuitous in a sense that gave them some agency in that regard and did make them maybe more similar to the evil that was being enacted on them. And in this one, they never really took on that role. And maybe by never taking on that role, could that, that keeps them in the victim stance throughout. It keeps them in self-defense. And does that then further just promote the argument I was saying about what good is allowed to do? That in the first film, good is allowed to want to be evil. And in this film, good isn't allowed to want to be evil. Yeah, I think that's it. I think that's absolutely it. When in the original film, like you said, because the daughter is dead, it's a... And again, to go back to the traps, because this was so hurried between them figuring it out and all of the violence starting, it didn't feel like there was that moment or that pause where parents 
they came together and they were like, we don't have anything to lose. We're just, we're going to do this, but we're going to be in this together. And like you said, we're going to take some sort of relish in enacting this vengeance. And here it, it remained at the survival mode. And that's so odd because by not allowing them to sink to the level of evil in this film, it actually seems to be a more conservative ideological stance because, because why? Um, I think you're exactly right. Because there's no blurring of lines because good is good and good doesn't do that. And those who do that are like this. Yeah, right. They don't ever sink to the, that's, but you know what I mean? But you know what I'm I'm saying when I'm saying that's so odd because it seems like it would be a, a more, there's something about having the good sink to the level of evil that would, would seem to be a more conservative argument. I think because the liberal argument, at least in our political discourse, Obama, right? Take the high road or Michelle Obama's famous quote. If they go low, we go higher. I don't know, whatever she said, I can't remember exactly, but and so I guess for me, I have this, I have this association of taking the high road with a more liberal philosophy. But in this case, taking the high road of the survival versus actual just pure vengeance um, ends up not being the liberal case. I don't know if I spelled that all out. Is that, are you with me? I got lost in my head. No, I am. And I think I agree with you because I think it really does come down to what you allow good and evil to be and having very hard lines around what good is. And when there are things that good can't do, which I think feel like this is an idea that's going to come up in future podcasts now that I sort of stumbled on that because I think that's really interesting. When there are things that good can't do, that reinforces the social order, right? Yes, uh, I don't know if that's universally true, but in this case, by reinforcing the social order, it's reinforcing these good and bad piles or buckets, as you've said, which have already been established as a conservative. Women are contained and protected and in the keeping of men. Evil is at bay because white upper middle class people are able to escape the threat of criminality um, through their wealth and their property ownership and, and their privilege. And so I guess my hesitation is, I don't know if that's always true because if it were a different social order that it were reinforcing, we would have a, we would have a different interaction or potentially we could. I love how you said that. You're exactly right. It just, it doesn't problematize the good and bad buckets. And so by not problematizing the good and bad buckets in this case, it's reinforcing you know, this this film was just classic 80s slasher film in terms of what was in the good and bad buckets. And we've been there before. <laughs> we've, we've been there many times. We've already seen the problems with this. So to just put forth that same old tired bucket and then reinforce it straight down the line, that doesn't give us any nuance to even question any of those things that it's arguing. I find that all really interesting. I'm glad we got that out of this. The wrinkle that I have to add is the final scene, at least in the version I watched, which is the head in the microwave, total torture porn, throw in, unnecessary scene. And really, there were a couple key moments, but 
under totally unnecessary. And I say that in particular and undermined much of the rest of the film. And the fact that he's a fucking doctor, he checks the guy's pulse and then somehow he is still alive enough for him to paralyze him and, and do this torture scenario. So I, I almost want to dismiss that as, as really a anomaly in the otherwise fairly consistent ideological argument we've been building for the film as, and that is together with the gratuitous nature of a lot of the violence I felt. And we can talk about whether, how that may compare to the, to the original, but it just felt, it really felt torture porny. And, and the primary example or the, when I first noticed that in particular was with drowning Aaron Paul, Drowning seemed like such a fitting kill because of what they've done with water being the liberation for mechanism and the, and the character association quality with Mary, with the daughter to then drown him seemed to be a very fitting retribution, vengeance demise. And that's all they had to do. It, it seemed very, again, this bolted on torture porn, excessive, oh, that's not gory enough. It's not elaborate enough. We need to, we can't just have you drown him. It needs to go into whatever, all these other things that happened, another fight and stabbing and garbage disposal and hammer and yada, yada, yada. Just drown him. It fits. It would be, it would be symbolically appropriate. And so that was, those were the pieces that I, or, or the, the the points that I have to make that argument. I totally agree with you. And and I think that all ties back to this commercialization. Disney World somehow washed for mass consumption version of the film. And I don't know if yours opened with a scene. Mine did just a black black screen, white letters. that said something along the lines of this film has been modified to include additional footage that was too something to be included in theaters. I want to, I, I want to, um, overreach because I don't remember what the word is, but I want to say like too terrifying to be in theaters. I don't remember what they said, but something along those lines was the opening scene. And so I think as the unrated version, they added a bunch of gratuitous violence. My guess is that this, the movie ended when the family was riding off on the boat and that this microwave scene is part of the unrated version. And that that has much less to say about the artistic vision of the film and much more to say about torture porn and how can we hype this or get someone who's already seen the film to rent the DVD or whatever was happening in 2009 in a way that I'm also inclined to write it off in terms of ideology, other than to say that there's just something about mass production of crap that resonates throughout this film. And I think that's another piece of it. Yes. And then with what you were saying uh, about it being such an eighties film, I feel compelled to point out something I think we've pointed out before is so our, our, the whole podcast is inspired by a notion that the horror films that are popular and salient and resonate in a particular time and place are reflective of something about the broader cultural moment and the social forces that are happening at that time. And so it is a very interesting case example that the slasher films of the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, arose with this resurgence or this initial surge of a neoconservative, neoliberal, for the rest of the world, political movement attached to 
the evangelical Christianity that was most associated with Ronald Reagan and his and the Republican Party at that time, Atwater and uh, Bush Jr. or Bush Sr. and Cheney with Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and the moral majority and focus on the family. And then we see this second moment that was really like mid to late 2000s of a remake of all these films. Halloween gets remade. Friday the 13th gets remade. Last House on the Left gets remade, even though Last House was from an earlier moment than those slashers. But this whole second wave and... Well, and I would argue that Last House on the Left got remade as a slash, as an 80s slasher, which it initially was not. Totally. And that's interesting because those... So if that moment happened as the neoconservative evangelical republicanism emerged in the 80s, in this case, it's actually emerging at the end of the second resurgence because Bush Jr. and that movement ruled from 2000 to 2008. And it wasn't till the latter half of that or the, the latter portion of that that these, I think that's right on my timing, that these films really became, this all started happening. And you could argue that that's, there's other things going on, but certainly a, a piece of that was that cultural moment. And it's almost, um, I don't know what exactly that that tells us, but I do think it's interesting that it seems like it would be a different argument if, what does it seem like? If it happened with Bush and Cheney, Bush Jr. and Cheney, uh, and the second Iraq war, you know, the sequel that was all manufactured, if it happened with that, I think it might seem more organic because it happens at the end of it. It seems either to be an indication that there felt there was a defensiveness and a, a need for there to be this argument not to swing back left to keep this ideology moving or it's simple craven pun intended craven Hollywood money commercial nihilism of oh we've got three these last three four years of bush cheney these things were popular then let's reboot these all and just milk it out and even if that or if that were the case where it was more monetarily driven rather than ideological driven it's almost worse because then they don't it's a mercenary film movement it's well we don't care what the damage would be after or if we continue and support and reaffirm this evangelical toxic political ideology, but we can make some money on it. If they actually had some sort of belief in it as objectionable as that is to me, at least it's a, (laughs) at least it's an ethos. Niles. Fuck me. I mean, say what you want about the tenets of national socialism, dude. At least it's an ethos. Yeah. At least it is driven by something other than like, we don't care what this will uh, do. We just want your dollars. I, first of all, I love everything you just said. I love that. And I, I also, I hesitate to interject anything into that because I just love what you said. But I think it also could be just a less ideologically deep reflection of what seemed normal at the time. Because that still happens now. And we, I, I'm going to reference back to Teeth again. That Teeth was a film that I believe was trying to make a progressive argument 
and still didn't seem to notice that it, its good and bad buckets were really shaped by a culture that in many ways seemed to espouse values that went against what the film was arguing. And it still drew right out of those buckets just like it was supposed to because that's just what you do. And so it's possible that this is a, a mirror on society, the collective nightmares title denotes just this is what felt normal and right. And I would argue still does in many ways. I, could, I think this film could have just been made as well because we're used to those good and bad buckets. Yes. And I'm going to interject a sociology moment, which we haven't overtly done in quite a while. But to me, that speaks to the power of hegemony, right? Which for those who don't know, Gramsci's concept of hegemony is the notion that the, well, specifically for Gramsci, the capitalist exploitative political economy of capitalism, modern capitalism is reinforced through other aspects of the society, particularly cultural artifacts. That was a surprisingly cogent description of hegemony. If I do say so myself, Laura, that actually sounded like it came out really, really good. It doesn't always. I wish I could have those words when I'm teaching that concept. <laughs> but anyway, so the, the now I've got stuck in my own laurels and uh, I can't remember what I was saying. <laughs> what, were we, what were we talking about? Oh, the power of hegemony. And and the normalization of the way things are and that normalization through the power of history and, and the weight of quote unquote, what everyone knows that becomes so ingrained and, and natural that it becomes, it becomes, it's a, it's a rut that is extraordinarily difficult to get out of. And we've talked about this somewhat where one of the key moments or efforts or challenges to doing that is getting out of is, is very analogous to getting out of the binary. And so if, if your favorite example of this is still John, who th- makes a very common argument that I still hear of, well, once a particular band or a particular music style or whatever gets quote unquote too popular, I stop listening because I don't want to be part of the mainstream. And so if the mainstream is the positive, of the binary, the negative is the not mainstream. And if you're only listening to the not mainstream, the mainstream is still defining your taste. And so what we have struggled with with many of these films is, is how do you get out of that scenario where what you're saying with teeth of, well, I think I'm listening to my own music, but what the mainstream is has been so overwhelming and taken for granted and assumed, or I've tried to make the jump to some other band run with the analogy, I guess. I don't realize that all, all it is is a, is a boy band. That's a remanufacture of, of the mainstream just with a different name on it. And it's seems a little bit different, but it's, it's not. You couldn't have said that better, Marshall. Yeah, I mean, I I absolutely agree with you that even in the pursuit of an argument that is meant to challenge current norms, it's really, really, really easy not to notice when you've fed into those norms yourself. I mean, they were cast, when they were choosing a picture for that first police person's daughter or children or whatever, you know, that's 
they're looking through the pictures. Oh, well, I don't know how you pick those. Maybe everybody brings in of their kid. You just decide which one's the cutest or something. I have no idea how you make that choice. But it seems to me that, oh, hey, this looks like a good one. These look like really compelling children. It might not be intentional. I'm, I'm, it's almost certainly not intentional. I would be surprised if it was intentional. Right. And a, a wonderful example that, shoot, I just saw another one that now I can't think of. But search results are a great modern example of this, where you can search things like all-American high school kid, and it's all white men, athletes, athletic, white men, young white men, or, well, high schooler, but all-American kid or whatever. Uh, shoot, I just saw some other search, but, but that is the kind of thing that reveals something that is a hegemonic standard of you're not necessarily even specifying or think you're specifying something. It's just so under the, it's just so built into the system that it's hard to even question until you, until you can identify it. And the strategy that is at least potential is Derrida's deconstruction, where you take that positive that is the mainstream that is taken for granted. You emphasize that it is constructed and you do that so that you can begin to dismantle it so that you are not, you are not just recreating it. You can see how it was built so that you can purposefully create something different. Another expression of that is Audre Lorde's The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House, is, is you can't just oppose. You can't just react. You have to, you have to uh, do something different. I think a key point in that is being able to see it, which is the difficult piece, because you don't always know it's there. Which is why we do this podcast. We're trying to see the, the, un, the, we're trying to pull that up to the visible that, that often gets less left not. Yay us. You, know, you, you, talked, you talked about searching like stock phones or whatever, Google searches. When I do Google searches for PowerPoints for my classes, I always try to, it, it takes effort to add diversity into your slides because you're absolutely right that when you just Google someone doing blah, 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 whatever it is you're looking for, you get a bunch of white people. And so when I try to branch out, an interesting thing that I've noticed, and it's, gosh, it's a pain in the butt, but when you try to branch out, I end up getting, I'll, I will Google for specific races or ethnicity, like, like based on what I feel like I've been lacking lately, which it feels awful to even have to do to make that concerted an effort, but that's what it takes to get those pictures because otherwise you don't find them. If you just search for person baking a cake or whatever the heck it is I'm trying to get, I won't get that. And when you do search specifically like that, you get a bunch of pay sites with like stock photos that they want you to pay for and you get tons of them. But I think because this is exactly a market, there are people who are trying to do this and they, you know, someone has realized that there's limited photos that are kind of branch outside that sort of hegemonic idea of what a person should look like in our society. And so when you go searching for them, it's really, it's, they're hard to find in ways that are naturally there. It's like a pay service at this point. So you're saying the quote unquote diversity photos are paid because there aren't just photos of whatever. Yeah. Is that what I'm understanding? They seem to be stock photos that you end up having to pay for. And I, you know, I've, I've searched for African-American teacher for example, because I want to show an image of a teacher and I don't just want, when you type teacher, you just get a bunch of white teachers and I've got too many white teachers in my slides. So I want to show, you know, the point has nothing to do with race. I'm just, the point is about being a teacher or delivering knowledge. And so I'm just going to show that picture and they, you find plenty of them, but they're all on stock photo sites where you have to pay for the image. 
That's really interesting. Not all, but just a way, way, way more than you would find if you just Google it. So to tie that back around, that is the hegemony because what that means is that to include diversity, you are paying a tax. And so the default, the, the images that reinscribe the normalcy of white middle-class people is free and that encourages you to continue that system rather than break out of it. Not you specifically, Laura, but generally you. Right. <laughs> For anybody listening, I know you understood that, but <laughs> uh, I think, you know what I think what I saw was, uh, was a Google search that was like protests versus riots, which was, I think, very akin to there was, I don't, it wasn't Google search, but it was uh, news reporting around the time of Katrina. It was a very prominent thing of quote unquote looters versus um it was like looters are black people but it was like people white searching people. for supplies <laughs> right yes yes absolutely right the white people were searching for supplies and the black people were looting in neck deep water or whatever. <laughs> obviously totally destitute so I, I think that's maybe what i saw well i thoroughly enjoyed this discussion as i often do i felt like this was one that really shined me too but i don't want to end it quite yet because i think there's one final thing we need to touch on which was that justin was that his name oh yes i'm so glad you said that instead of shooting himself and and being a victim character in the previous film he was a victim character but instead of doing that he survives and then is taken in by the family to replace the brother i don't know if i'm reading that too far but that felt again icky and I, i think the overall film just felt a bit ideologically off to me. So I didn't like that ending, but I don't know. What does that say about evil? I guess he, he was certainly not reprimanded as evil, right? In the first film, we had this discussion over whether that character should or would have been considered evil. It was a more interesting discussion in the first film. In this film, he, he never really did do anything evil. He didn't really help. In the first film, that character went out and went fishing for Mary and her friend. So he helped, but then he was hooked on drugs or whatever our catch-all was for him being controlled by his father. And he does eventually shoot himself. So he kind of opts out, which makes him a bit more of a sympathetic character. And this one, Justin, that was his name, right? He never did anything bad or wrong. He didn't bring this on, not purposefully bring it on Mary. He looked bothered when bad things were happening to her, he maybe didn't stand up as much as he could have, but I also, they, they made him out to be such a passive, doesn't feel like he can stand up character that I certainly didn't feel like that was out of character for him not to stand up. Oh God, but that's, uh, yes. First of all, thank you. Cause absolutely we need to address it. And, and I don't, I got lost and, and didn't think about that. I particularly in the moment we're in, which is late June, 2020, Massive resurgence of Black Lives Matter. Really fascinating sociologically, but that's for another time. But part of what is being emphasized now is to be passive, to be com- is to be complicit, is not neutral. It is a negative. And this is well exemplified by the motto that white silence is violence. Uh, meaning to say, if you are not using your privilege to be anti-racist, you are relying on that privilege to benefit from the racism that's happening, at least passively, but you're still benefiting. So that is, that is morally problematic in and of itself. 
And I think that applies very clearly to Justin. He, I I don't know in the same of he's benefiting from right privilege, but he's complicit. He does bring them. He knows he's with his dad. Who's this terrible person. He does bring them back to the hotel. I mean, he could have gone and gotten it and brought it back if he really needed to do whatever it was. So he certainly wasn't fishing as overtly or overtly in the way that happened in the original film. But my point being, he doesn't ever try to do anything to stop. Even when he hands over the gun, he doesn't, there's nothing that he does on either side. And well, he tries to kill his dad. He fires the gun. When does he, when does he do that? I just remember dad comes into the room and he hands, turns the gun over to him. No, he fires it. it. It clicks, but it doesn't go off. And then dad gets really upset and dad pushes him into the skewer on the wall, whatever that was. But that was after he like sat there. It's not after he. Okay. So what I'm talking about is, is this where he hands the gun over. You're saying there's another point where he, so he hands the gun over to dad. And then he tries to shoot his father. But he doesn't have the gun anymore. Does the gun get lost in the struggle here? I got super confused, honestly, about who had what where in some of the fight scene at the end. I got really, and it was kind of dark, and I just, yeah, I don't know. But yes, he's standing in the kitchen, and he has the gun, and it's pointed at his father. And uh, oh, that yes, oh yeah. Okay, so I don't think he. I think he just. It clicks. I took that to be cocking the gun, not. I think he fires it. Uh, well, that's a important gun cocking. So he doesn't try and shoot him. He does. Wait, are you sure? Are you seeing what I'm, I mean, yeah. according to the subtitles. But then does dad turn around and take it? I think he, no, I think he fires it. Let it go for a minute. Okay. Is yours frozen too? No, did my yours freeze? Oh, yeah, what I see it's frozen. So it's cocked now. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's it's okay. It's after this. He shoots him. He tries. Gun yeah. clicks. He does. Okay, you're right. Thank you for bearing with me. What will we confirm that? Okay, so he does intervene. Finally, he makes an effort. I'm trying to decide how I feel about that. Just because so much, because he never resists through any of the rest of it. I mean, it is the very last possible moment when he's stepped up to make this effort. There's something to be said for that. Um, there's an argument that you gotta you gotta give people a, a chance to reform. I do find it really problematic that, like you said, at, at the end they're back on the boat, and particularly with the dead brother, he then is positioned, and with all the similarities and look, he's then positioned as though he's now integrated into the family as a brotherly figure, which it was pretty. Uh, it was almost like they got their unit back. Oh, totally re- reestablished the nuclear family. Yeah. But I don't even know what that was meant to represent. Like it didn't even, it doesn't even make sense to me ideologically. I'm not sure I can even weave it together into an argument I find problematic because I don't know that I can weave it into an argument. But just like watching the girl's belly button at the beginning and her, the top of her panties and being creeped out, I was likewise creeped out when this was what was happening on the boat at the end of the film. Yeah. Other than like with everything else, it's a reestablishing of normalcy that is a nuclear family, even at the cost of including someone who 
has been morally uh, has had has failed to rise to the occasion throughout the film until a, a, a last it, it, how about this it's just really interesting that he is redeemed because you're right by him pulling the trigger trying to kill his father there is a moral redemption there for his passivity but it is i don't know for me you know i i, I think i have a more pessimistic or or negative view or a more critical view that your naivete of inviting these these young women to your hotel room when your crazy escaped convict family is obviously coming back. I'm like, you don't just get a pass on being that naive. You're 17 fucking years old, like whatever, which is odd because that's exactly what crew girls at him. It's like, grow up, be an adult, be a man. I don't think it up for me. I'm not trying to make a gendered argument. Just like be an adult, have some sort of awareness of what is happening in the world. Explicitly 17. Because if he is, that's interesting that he was presented in that light. Whereas Mary's parents, I don't remember which it was explicitly said like she's 17. She can't be out doing whatever it is they were talking about her doing, which I thought was notable when they said it. Cause I thought, Oh, she's 17. Well, I mean, <laughs> so she's going to spend the night at her friend's house. Right. <laughs> Doesn't seem that bad. Right. And he does steal from the store, right? Doesn't he put some, slip something in his sweatshirt? you know, he's trading cigarettes for drugs. He's so his arc is he moves from evil to good. Yeah. It's it's interesting now, like we were saying about the good and bad baskets, just being reaffirmed. He's the exception to that. But to what end? I don't know. (laughs) I agree with you. I don't know. I apparently to, to reestablish the nuclear family. That's the only thing that I can see. And it's, uh, which to me, the base message there is, is that the, the reestablished white middle, upper middle class nuclear family is powerful enough to be the savior and to rehabilitate or to bring person who's on the edge of evil back into the fold, which to me, I don't know if I'm just forcing that, but that seems to me another, another thread in a otherwise still very increasingly conservative film. I don't think you are forcing it. I actually, I like that a lot. And I think, I don't think it's visible. I mean, as in, I don't think they intended to say that, but I think you're right on. And it's interesting because it's interesting in contrast to what I was saying earlier about what's good allowed to do. And there might be a, I know I was going to say there's a gender difference there, but if we're arguing that the parents are not allowed to be violent because they're good as part of, you know, there are all the things Mary wasn't allowed to do. The parents aren't allowed to be violent for the sake of fun, I guess. They're allowed to be violent out of victimhood. And then he is good, apparently, at the end. He is redeemed, it seems, on that boat. So he was allowed to do all of those things and still be good. He's the only character in the film that's allowed to have nuance in that way. And I like what you're saying, that the that the payoff in the film, when the people deciding how to write the film were deciding how should this end, maybe the compellingness of getting the four of them in a boat and he fits in as the brother one out over, well, you know, there's probably some poll of, I don't know. Do we really let him back in? Do we not? He's a little bit one of the villains. I don't know. But yeah, that closing scene just, just wins it. I think you might be right on. And that's even more compelling given that they had to make the deliberate decision not to follow the, precedent of the original film and have him kill himself or have him die right 
because he, he gets life afterwards. In the first film, we have a problematic, that character is problematic and he's controlled by drugs or, and his father. And similar to the, the character in this film, there's a undercurrent or maybe it's an overcurrent of abuse going on there where in terms of his culpability, we have some questions. He's certainly not as culpable as, as Krug in either film. And so we are left to wonder how culpable is this person? And, and I think in terms of how they laid out the character in the first film, he was more culpable, certainly, because he did go fishing for the girls. He was more complicit than Justin in this film. But then by killing himself, he, I guess, I, I don't know if I'd say redeems himself, but kind of, he gives up his whole future for this. And so he doesn't get a happy ending. I think that solves the moral questionableness of his character a little bit more clearly than in this film, because now Justin gets a future, presumably, and he gets the future that, yeah, it's, it's the prize, right? This family is the prize. Yeah. Should we grade it? Yeah. All right. You want to go first? Do you want me to? You can. I want to bump up the original film now in contrast. <laughs> I think we give the original film, what we do a B? Uh, yeah, something like that. But yes, this does make the original film look better, for sure. Yeah, you go first. Uh, not, not good. <laughs> gratuitous nudity, gratuitous violence. I'll say that out for, first and foremost. And it's worse still that they moved from a film that was somehow more progressive and liberal 50 years ago or 40 years, I guess, before this film. This was end of the 2000s. <laughs> with, with no diversity in the film, the only person of color at all is the maid for the hotel, who's, which is a total throwaway line. And a um, scare scene, which I absolutely yeah, know. Yeah. Hang your hand right. on the window and make us jump. <clears throat> yes. So what's worse, that or the chicken person in the first film? <laughs> it was such a blatant stereotype, but had some autonomy. You were right yeah. in the Right, told the cops to kiss off and purposefully like threw them off the hood of the car. I mean, I don't know if that was purposeful, but let them get up there and only to throw them off and make them look foolish. Yeah, there was totally some autonomy there. But uh, while like ridiculously enacting a racial stereotype yeah. to like uh, a comical extent. Oh, for sure. But yeah, still. And so in a film of all white pretty people, yes, somehow they still managed to establish an hierarchy of Aryan is good. <laughs> and I say that very deliberately. Blonde hair, blue eye, Aryan is better than the other. Nuclear family is overwhelmingly a powerful, positive good. The messy family of a brother and a son without a mother and a sexually active woman is contrasted with that. The women are passive. There's real deep problematic ideological reinforcement of these neoconservative, neoliberal, those are, believe it or not, the same. For those who aren't listening or who are confused by me saying that, what we call neoconservative in the U.S. is called neoliberal in the rest of the world. There's a long story behind that that we don't need. I don't think the issue is particularly well depicted. In fact, after all this discussion, the most responsible thing about the entire film is really the sexual assault scene like you said, Laura emphasized, if you, but if you place that scene itself, the specifics of that scene are, are reasonably do, well done, but the, the entire context of it is problematic. Trying to decide if I want to give it a D minus based on that one 
that one sort of moment of light. And uh, I, I, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm willing to, to give the film, but that's, that's where I would, I would split the hair or not the hair, but that's where I would, where I would split the divide is, do I want to pass it for that? And, or do I not? I feel like I'd put a D minus on the paper and when I was grading and then when I was entering grades, I would look at it again and after some background processing and decide whether or not I was going to fail it. I'm, I'm right there with you. And I think for me, it comes down to this question that we run into so often and I still don't know the answer to. <laughs> Maybe we should add this to one of our most interesting questions in the world. I knew that. Is it better or worse if they didn't intend to promote the ideology they're promoting? I don't know, because this is, I think, exactly a case of that. I don't think they intended to do this. I don't think they were cognizant of what was going in the good and bad buckets so much. So I, a part of me wants to pass them because they didn't technically, I think, intend to make an argument that was problematic. They did it sort of on accident. That also is kind of a problem. And beyond that, I'll say another thing that, wants to, that makes me want to mark them down is this overall commercialization component to just the production of the film in general. And I think our argument about these final scenes that were put in and the gratuitous violence plays into that as well, that this was at, at best an attempt at shock because it might be fun and at worst just a blatant money grab. Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm hanging there right on that line over the issue of, I would like to penalize someone worse if they tried to make an argument I thought was problematic. I think, I mean, I feel like I would like there to be lower to go for that. <laughs> that So maybe they get to stay in a D minus? I guess. <laughs> I mean, you do tend to be a little bit more forgiving, generous with your grading, but we're right at the same position. And I don't, I'm not trying to pass the buck. I really do like to, if I'm deciding when I'm deciding whether or not I'm going to fail someone, unless it's just a obvious just they didn't even try. I do like to give a grade and then look back over, you know, I would like skim through the film again or skim through the paper again and see. So I'm not trying all I'm saying is I'm not, I'm not trying to pass the buck. That's really the line I'm walking and I need some, some background processing time to give that final grade. I, I agree with you on that. I think let's go with D minus for now. Yeah. Okay. I'll go with that. All right. Well, thank you for listening. If you've listened this long, we appreciate it. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Next, are you okay with doing Prisoners next? Yeah, let's do it. Great. Next up, Prisoners. Uh, Vela, Vela, God, I'm sorry, this is terrible. Ville Neuve film. That is uh, one I am really, really looking forward to discussing. And until then, horror films are our collective nightmares. So we we did an episode with a couple of, with several students 
about the film, Jennifer Reeder's film from 2019, Knives and Skin. It was a, a dis- difficult discussion because we did it at two separate times. And we did it with, it was just me and Andy and Aubrey for the first discussion immediately after the film. And then several days later, it was myself, Laura, Keenan, and Sophie. And we had a discussion then. I had to pull that all together. And um, we had very different takes on the film, particularly Laura and I, I, I think the students ended up falling somewhere in between, but Laura was very, uh, did not appreciate the film. I very much did. Um, I was, here's what I want to say, regardless of what you think about the film, I reached out to Jennifer Reeder, who wrote the, directed the film on social media. And what I want to say is that she was, more than generous in her response. She listened to part of the podcast or much of the podcast, even though not everything that, that we had to say was particularly positive. She said that that wasn't, you know, that's not fun for her to hear, but nonetheless, she was still willing to let me know that she gave it a shot, gave us a shot. And was even generous enough to offer me some thoughts on the making of the film and what our take on it was. And I don't know if any of that was something she wanted on the record. So I'm just going to include one piece, which for me was just wonderful to hear. I appreciated everything that she was willing to do in that context. But in particular, quote, there are absolutely no accidents in this film end quote, is something that she messaged me over social media. And as we have had discussions, many discussions over the years, including sometimes where we've been able to go to Q&As, live Q&As with writers and directors, to get get someone on record who's willing to say, everything in this film is intentional. It was all planned. It was all designed. For me, it was extraordinarily validating. And it for me, it made me want to return to the film with the understanding that that was our impression. And even though Laura, I think you had things to say about that weren't all positive. You did appreciate that it was a very loved and intentional film. And I just want to say that she validated that she presented that again. I am planning to revisit the film and see if I can't sort through and, and figure out what she did. But I just want to say that, that for me, it was a really, I just really appreciated everything that she had to had to offer. So that's, that's my piece. I don't know if you need, want to say anything about that, Laura, or not. I, no, I mean, I, I suppose I would just provide a little nuance to my take on the film, which certainly wasn't that I, I hated it or thought it was terrible or anything like that. I, I very much appreciated the ideology. I thought it was beautiful. And my critique came from the execution of what I thought it was intending to get across and both my experience in viewing the film, which was a bit confused, I guess I would say. And and because I was confused through a lot of that, I didn't see the connections. I found it to be a bit slow, but I do think that, that overall what it felt like she was trying to accomplish was lofty. And that was, you know, it was kind of the opposite of what we talked about today in a way, because it was a case where here we're talking about someone who, doesn't intend to espouse a certain ideology, but does. And what does that mean? I think in this case, what she intended to do felt to be very admirable. And so it was difficult. And I was, I was probably extra critical because I wanted that vision to come through. And for me, it didn't. But um, 
I, I don't want to be characterized as just overall hating the film because that certainly wasn't the case. I don't want to speak for her. I will just say that it can be difficult to hear. For me, that came through Laura. It, that may have, some of that may have gotten lost in the translation. I edited the, the conversation together. So some of that may have been that of trying to seam two conversations together. And um, at, at least for me, and I'll just speak for me, I do sometimes get wrapped up in my ranting without really any consideration for if someone involved in the production is listening, uh, depending on, on who that may be. My impression, Laura, was very much exactly what you said, but I was also in the room with you and had the conversation with you. And I think it's, I appreciate you restating it here for the record that uh, everything that you just said, and if, if any of that got lost in the translation, that, that can happen. I just thought it was super cool that she was actually willing to message me back. And like, she had a little exchange with me of, and like I said, said, you know, no, everything is there for a reason. And, and she gave, she gave us a listen. I mean, that's a, that's huge for us. I, I, I appreciate that. Uh, just anyone willing to, to read the thing, to just read my message from couple people out of the blue on social media and and actually give us a shot i i just want to thank her for that if nothing else i thought that was really cool i totally agree with you and if it wasn't meant to be on the record then off the record i would love to hear what you talked with her about the film and and how that feeds into some of the questions that we had in assessing the film i would love to get her take on that yeah i love horror films i love talking horror films particularly with my my lovely co-host. I don't want to say that particularly with my um, co-host because on her, which is really what I remember. I remember the camera just sitting on her face and I should say that a different way. I remember the camera staying focused on her face. Oh shoot. What was it? What was it that you said? I just lost my train of thought, but it was super important it seems like it would be a different argument if how about this? It seems like a, uh, an effort to convince. What does it seem like? Uh, well, that's a important uh, little, uh, uh, I think I have a version here. Last house, where's that? That's at 140.45. Okay, bear with me. Gun cocking. <laughs> <laughs>